Welcome to episode 45 of the GT on 5G. It's the latest inside scoop on everything 5G. We cover six topics in about 15 minutes, and it's brought to you by More Insights and Strategy. On this April Fool's Day, I'm Will Townsend, and joining me again this week is fellow analyst Angel Sag. So let's get started with my first topic. Um, Cisco Live occurred this week. It was the second year in a row that it was a virtual conference. I mean, honestly, buddy, between you and I, I can't wait to get back on an airplane. So I'm I'm hoping in the second half of the year, things will change, but they did a great job, you know, from my perspective. And what I want to talk about on the podcast uh, are two things. Um, one, um, and an, several announcements related to uh, their re-architecture of the internet uh, and also 5G. So let me start with the first. So it's no secret that uh, their acquisition of Acacia was pretty hardly fought. Uh, they had come to an agreement and then um, for whatever reason, you know, the company, you know, chose to use China as a, uh, a negotiation ploy and uh, they extended that out. Cisco ended up paying a little bit more money for them. But what I'm really impressed about um, that acquisition is that it brings um, a capability to uh, allow them to deploy a, a new routed optical networking infrastructure. And um, that involves coherent optics. And for, for those of you that aren't knowledgeable about that, it's, uh, it's very complicated. Um, I'm not a scientist but I, or an engineer, but I play one on TV. But, you know, net-net um, coherent optical technology allows um, a must, much faster interconnect between um, campus connectivity and fiber optic networks. And so, um, they announced, uh, you know, that integration um, and that, you know, that rollout with a, along with a lot of other enhancements. I'm actually writing a Forbes article that should post on Friday. So if you go hit at Willtown Tech, my Twitter feed, you'll find that article there. But, um, you know, the assumption that, that Cisco has, and they've been a part of the internet from the very beginning, so they can stake a claim on the internet versus Al Gore from my perspective. Um, they really want to extend that capability. They want to provide scale and headroom. I mean, COVID has proven that, you know, internet traffic spiked up to 50% in different parts of the world. Mm -hmm. and, um, and then when you start thinking about the future of hybrid work, um, that, you know, people are going to, you know, continue to work from home and as they return to, you know, to campus environments as well, um, there needs to be a re-architecture of the internet from my perspective. So, um, I thought this announcement was, you know, very, very strong. It sort of plays into their strengths with uh, custom silicon, um, as well as, you know, other things that they're doing around 5G in general. And so the other thing I wanted to talk about was I had an opportunity uh, during exclusive analyst roundtables um, to ask Jonathan Davidson, who's the, the senior vice president and general manager of their mass scale infrastructure group, um, what, what their focus is around private 5G because they've been somewhat quiet. And, you know, my question was, I mean, do you view this as, you know, just selling equipment um, as a managed service or both? And, you know, I wasn't surprised to hear that they believe the right go-to-market path, at least for Cisco, is to focus on, you know, managed service offerings, which um, might be a little bit different than Nokia's take on, you know, wanting to sell, you know, the infrastructure and that sort of thing. And there's certainly um, a lot of startups like Salona that I've talked about on prior podcasts that are focused on 5G as a service. But 
Um, what's also interesting at Cisco Live, um, they announced their foray into networking as a service. So um, this fits very well within that sort of that broader overarching um, uh, plan. Um, and, uh, and, you know, it, it's no secret that, you know, companies are embracing SaaS, um, you know, and if you look at, you know, Hewlett Packard with GreenLake and you look at Dell with their Apex um, as a service announcement, Cisco might be a tad late to the party, but certainly they have great capabilities to deliver not only the needed infrastructure to provide scale for future internet connectivity, but also for 5G. So what are your thoughts? Well, I hope they don't call it NAS because uh, that's already taken. Yeah. But um, I think I think Cisco has always been kind of the incumbent player in the networking industry. Mm -hmm. um, and they've done a really good job of maintaining their position in the market uh, as a market leader, maybe not necessarily the market leader every single time, yeah. um, but they they tend to, to understand which trends are relevant uh, on a macro scale. So mm -hmm. I, I think um, they might not be always be the first, but when they have a more integrated solution, um, and with more mature products, I think that they do have um, a lot of opportunities still. Yeah, you know, and, you know, they've uh, actually added a lot of um, capabilities through acquisitions. Acacia is one of them. Um, there are numerous, you know, um, you know, announcements, Thousand Eyes, which brings improved observability uh, to enterprise networking in general, which could be leveraged there as well. You know, what I like about Cisco is that they have all these capabilities, to your point, not always, you know, leading in certain categories, but certainly from an optical standpoint, they are a leader. And um, if you think about their footprint, they are the largest, you know, networking provider in the world. And they can really lean into that enterprise and install base to deploy things like private cellular 5G networking. So, um, it's a combination of having the right route to market in my in my mind and having the right pieces to put together. And I think they have they have a very strong recipe to be successful there. So uh, we'll keep our eyes on that. This is a new announcement. Again, go hit my Twitter feed um, if you'd like to read my Forbes analysis and insights into all of the other announcements also around Cisco Live. But let's move to your first topic this week. And you want to talk about Samsung and mid-band for 5G. Yeah, so Samsung announced uh, new mid-band hardware, specifically hardware capable of delivering 400 megahertz channel width on the mid-bands. So obviously there's many different mid-bands that are out there today. Mm -hmm. um, but what's interesting is this new hardware, which is designed for massive MIMO, um, will allow operators to essentially roll out one piece of hardware, even if they don't have continuous heart, you know, spectrum across all mid bands. Mm -hmm. So they could have, you know, all of their different blocks of spectrum operating on the same equipment. Yeah. Um, and one of the big things was that operators can use this for RAN sharing as well, which isn't necessarily something that matters in the US market, um, but there are some sure operators in Europe that are doing it. So, they are. They are. Um, this is definitely a more Eurocentric play, I believe. Mm -hmm. um, but I also think there will be applications, especially for C-band, um, where Samsung has an opportunity because I think that there's going to be pretty 
you know, disjointed blocks of spectrum once everything's, you know, rolled out. Um, while I don't think Samsung has necessarily signed any explicit deals to roll out mid-band in the U.S. for any specific carrier, they do already have a relationship with Verizon. Yeah. So there is a possibility that that could be where they land in the U.S., but it definitely looks a little bit more European-centric. But honestly, it could work anywhere that mid-band's rolling out. And, you know, no one's going to have 400 megahertz of continuous spectrum. You know, 200 is already pushing it. Yeah. Uh, but what I think is that having that 400 megahertz gives you a little bit more flexibility in terms of spectrum that you can acquire or spectrum that you already have that might not be continuous in that band. Yeah, you know, and, you know, having one solution that covers all of that also from a CapEx perspective um, is quite compelling for operators as well. And I agree with you. Um, you know, you're seeing some, you know, RAN sharing in Europe, not, not necessarily the U.S., but you, you mentioned a very good point. Um, for, um, you know, Verizon has been, you know, keenly partnered with Samsung Networks in their 5G rollouts for fixed wireless access and mobility. And, you know, given what they spent, you know, at the C-band auction north of $45 billion dollars, um, it might be interesting to see, you know, um, you know, how they leverage this platform. So, um, yeah, so we'll keep our eyes on it for sure. I was also going to say that it's likely that Samsung offers a more price competitive solution than some of the other more incumbent players for the sake of growing its business and getting market share. So that's I also an opportunity, I believe. No, that's an excellent point, because when you look at the, the traditional you know, infrastructure providers that have been strong in RAN, it's really been, it's really been Nokia and Ericsson. And you know, Samsung hasn't had you know, necessarily a strong footprint in the RAN space. So I totally agree with you. That's a great observation. Um, let's move to my second topic this week, and that's a great segue into Ericsson. Um, they announced this week the opening of a lab. They're calling it the Open Lab. And it's really focused around, you know, uh, VRAN and their cloud RAN announcement that, that I believe that they've really taken a leadership position on. Um, but this is interesting because when you think about Ericsson and Nokia, they've been very resistant in the past to the whole notion of open and disaggregation because that sort of blows up their, their business model around end to end. Um, although Nokia with their new leadership has come out and said, um, we, we realize that, that not every operator or service provider wants to consume end-to-end. -end. They want to consume best of breed. And so, you know, Nokia has been a little more flexible. Obviously, they've been very uh, supportive of OpenRAN. Ericsson and Huawei, not as much. So um, I think this is a great step for, um, for Ericsson. I mean, I, I call it the, uh, the open tsunami. I was just going to say something about that. Yeah, and, and if they and if they decide to bury their head in the sand or bury their head in the wave, um, they they could get totally passed by. And so um, I, I think this is a step in the right direction. Now, will they go kicking and screaming, you know, along with Open RAN? Time will tell. But I think you know th this sort of opens you know the um, you know kind of the discussion at least internally with Ericsson from my perspective on, you know, really seriously, you know, embracing what, what is coming down the pipe. So I'm sure you've got some perspective on this as well. Yeah, I think, I mean, first of all, everybody has some kind of open lab now. Um, mm -hmm. That seems to be the, uh, the, the choice of name. Though, yeah. yeah, everyone has some kind of 5G open lab for something related to 5G. 
Um, but I do think it's going to be interesting to see who has, you know, who works with them in terms of interoperability mm -hmm. uh, to make this possible. Uh, and that's why they need the lab, right? But I, I think that eventually, at least when we're talking about open RAN, I think everyone will have adopted it at one point or another, um, at varying degrees. Um, but I think it's going to be an inevitability, uh, especially with U.S. operators spending as much as they have on spectrum. C-band, yeah, C-band especially. And we've talked about that on prior podcasts. You know, you know, my my hypothesis is that, you know, I think of, of all the three tier ones in the U.S., Verizon's really going to have to embrace it because, I mean, they're the ones that stepped up and spent the 45 plus billion on C-band and incremental eight to 10 billion to densify their network. And so, yeah, so I, it, it's it's going to be a major it's going to be a major infrastructure play, and so we'll keep our eyes, you know, and ears open, you know, with with respect to developments here. But let's move to your second topic this week. You want to talk about Huawei? I did catch their earnings. Um, it looked like they had pretty strong growth in China, but there are a lot of um, folks that are doubting: can they sustain that given the entity listing and all the challenges that they have in the U.S.? So why don't you provide your perspective on that? Yeah, it's it's an interesting scenario. It's also a very complicated one. Yeah. Um, but basically, the top line is that Huawei's revenue was up 3.6 or 3.8 year over year. Yeah. Um, so, and that's compared to 2019, where they had an increase of 5.6 in profit and 19% revenue. Yeah. So, um, it's it's not a great situation for the company because they had a lot of momentum going their way. Um, and China, like you mentioned, was their best bright spot where they had 15% growth while they had 12% drop in Europe, uh, an 8.7% um, drop in Asia and a 25% drop in the Americas. Mm -hmm. So, um, it's not a great situation for Huawei, especially with all the entity listings and, and restrictions and fab supply issues. But it seemed like a, most of the business hit was on the consumer side, not on the infrastructure side. Mm -hmm. That was something that had been impressed upon us when we spoke with Huawei prior to the announcement yeah. um, under NDA. But um, essentially the situation is that they have to find a way to create a middle ground with the U.S. government. Um, I actually don't think that their, their their devices are necessarily the security risk as much as their network infrastructure theoretically could be. Could be, yeah. Right? Um, I think that's an important thing to consider because smartphones are not – I mean, Huawei's smartphones were banned by the U.S. government within its own use for a while. So it just doesn't make sense. Um, but that all aside, um, I do think that there can be a potential middle ground where Huawei says, okay, we won't use our chips anymore for our phones. We'll use a Qualcomm or a MediaTek, um, and we will put that in our phones, and that will be the, the compromise that we make with you to allow us yeah. to continue to ship our, our phones. Um, now, on the infrastructure side, I'm not entirely sure what kind of you know agreements can be reached there. Um, because the U.S. had, you know, pushed for Huawei to be pushed out in a lot of countries. Yeah. But I think that Huawei does have a path forward, and it seems to be that they are diversifying their business beyond just network infrastructure 
and smartphones mm -hmm. to increase you know its its 5G patent incomes and to look at automotive opportunities and to kind of expand the company's breadth into IoT so that way it isn't necessarily impacted as heavily by US sanctions or very specific you know industry specific regulations so i think that Huawei is not going anywhere um, but even to their own words, I have a feeling that 2021 is going to be a very difficult year for them. Um, I think that they started the, the year very rough like everybody else did and had a big bounce back when things started to go back to normal in China. Um, but the reality is, is that they, they're probably going to have a difficult Q1 and Q2 and um, it's going to be a really difficult 2021 for them. But I, I get a sense that they're already kind of shifting the direction of the ship a little bit um, to account for the changing world. Yeah, I would agree. And, you know, just to remind folks, I mean, Huawei is a, a massive company, you know, the probably one of the largest, if not the largest, you know, technology companies in China, 120 plus billion dollars in revenue. So to even have a 3%, you know, revenue, um, you know, increase year over year is massive. And, you know, not only are they into cellular networking infrastructure, but they have an enterprise networking uh, business unit as well. It's quite small relative to their cellular infrastructure business. It's probably, you know, I haven't looked recently, but it's probably in the neighborhood of 10 to 15 billion in, in US revenue. And, and that could be a pivot, you know, area away from them. But I, I agree with you that <clears throat> I think the concerns are more around the infrastructure and not the smartphone. I think, you know, another, and I think you're, you're, you're spot on if they start using uh, merchant, you know, SOCs and, and modems and that sort of things in their smartphones, like from Qualcomm, like from MediaTek, that could have, you know, kind of allay some fears. I think another fear that I've heard is that, you know, with their Karen, you know, um, chipsets, they were integrating AI um, and I think that might scare, you know, a lot of, at least, you know, government officials in the US, it's like, oh my goodness, you know, like Chinese AI and a smartphone, can that, can that spy on, you know, can you spy on people, you know, sort of like the concern around, you know, your your integrated webcam on, you know, your computer and so many people that like to cover them up with a piece of tape or a sticky note. So I think, yeah, I mean, that, that might be one way for them, you know, to sort of allay those fears is to use more of the kind of industry standard, you know, you know, silicon in their solutions. But We'll keep an eye out on this and, you know, as things develop, we'll report back. Um, let's move to my third and final topic this week. And there's been a lot of discussion. I don't want to wax politics, but um, the Biden administration has proposed a $2 trillion infrastructure plan. Part of that includes their desire to bridge the digital divide within the next 10 years. And um, I haven't drilled into kind of the details around that. But, mm -hmm. um, but obviously, you know, that would involve, um, you know, subsidies and that sort of thing for operators. But what strikes me is really ironic, and I'm not sure if that administration really understands the ins and outs of all this. And we've talked about this before. If the FCC continues to take Spectrum money to the bank, um, that's going to be counterproductive, you know, because I believe, you know, you, know you, you can bifurcate this into a number of different areas. You know, it's it's about, you know, cable, you know, you know, modem, you know, for, you know, for broadband access, it could be, you know, fixed wireless access, it could be, you know, a, a number of different, you know, sort of modalities that sort of come together here. But, 
you know, there seems to be, you know, um, sort of a schizophrenic, you know, you know, approach by the government, you know, by the U.S. government at least. And so, you know, number one, the easiest way to speed, to, you know, 5G deployment in my mind and get FWA out there to some of these outlying areas is to quit taking the money to the bank. So what are your thoughts? I think um, from what I've seen is that there are some people like um, the WISPA VP of Government Affairs said they think the, the plan is on target mm-hmm. uh, for what's needed. I think your analysis of the situation um, is fair, but I also think it, it forgets that most of the taking to the bank that we've had um, was partially initiated by the previous administration that tried to run the government like a business, um, which I personally don't really believe is necessarily the way um, we should be running our spectrum auctions because that is kind of like, um, it gets passed down to the consumer, which is the taxpayer. Um, So I think this $100 billion potential uh, plan to build high-speed broadband networks throughout the country is something that we've needed for the last 50 years um, and should have been done 50 years ago, um, but wasn't done because nobody held the operators accountable for it. Um, you know, we've been paying these fees for a long time, so it needs to be done. Um, and I think one of the biggest things is that we have to look at where we can deploy gigabit when it's when it's possible, um, and also deploying as much bandwidth in as many places as possible because ultimately the countries that will succeed the most in the next century will be the ones that are the most interconnected exactly. with the most bandwidth. And um, if we're not going to solve our real estate problems that we have in this country, we might as well let people live where they want to live um, and be able to work from anywhere. Um, and that's partially, I think, what's going to be enabled by this potential um, investment in, in broadband in this $2.3 trillion infrastructure package is to allow people to remain where they are today um, when they've decided to you know, leave the cities uh, due to COVID and allow to them to live anywhere that they choose, which I think is optimal because it potentially reduces the, the, the burden on, on big cities to densify aggressively. Yeah. Well, I mean, you kind of spanked the operators there in your in your commentary. You know they're in the they're in the business to make a profit, and Absolutely. it's you know it's you know it's subscriber density that that allows you to retire your, um, you know your investment in infrastructure, and it's just it's you know it's it's purely economics. And I agree with you. I think you know there there needed you know to be more done in the past to bridge the digital divide. Um, it's not a simple you know scenario, and you know this this proposal is quite expensive, you know, and, you know, I'm, you know, I'm of the mindset that there, there needs to be a balance between, you know, a number of different things. And so again, um, we, we don't have the time to, you know, to, to, to figure this out between you and I, but on, on this podcast, but it'll be interesting to kind of keep tabs on this and see th- how things develop. But uh, I think you and I are pretty much in agreement on, on most of these, uh, these, these core issues. So, but let's move to your third and final topic this week. And, you know, again, it's it's no secret that you know Qualcomm has had to you know battle its way out of court, you know, for you know for a number of reasons, and it sounds like this week the FTC finally cried uncle. Yeah. So 
I mean, they've been they've been pursuing this um, this lawsuit ever since the end of the Obama administration. So it's basically been a four year saga. Yeah. Um, in the last days of the Obama administration, this was filed. Um, and honestly, anyone who understands the the core tenets of this lawsuit and the way our industry works um, knew that this lawsuit really didn't make much sense from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Uh, and our, our principal analyst and founder, Patrick Moorhead, has written considerably on this topic mm-hmm. um, and has, has kind of said that, you know, it's important to account for patents and intellectual property as being valuable um, and how important this case would have been if it made it to the Supreme Court, which it did not. Yeah. Um, but I think the really important thing to consider is the Ninth District Court completely eviscerated the FTC's case mm-hmm. uh, after they, they got a, a favorable judgment from Judge Coe, who's you know famous for a lot of these very high profile cases. cases. Yeah, um, yeah. And I mean, even her, her tack was very off the mark um, and really didn't represent the realities of what's going on in the market today, or even at that time when the lawsuit was filed. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I think what's really interesting about the whole case is that it did the case that, 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 that was pushed by the FTC um, was proven wrong over the course of that cases running through the courts because it said that it caused the harm to the industry. But if you look at the industry, it has thrived and, right. and market share has shifted and new players have gained market share and grown. So it really doesn't support the case um, yeah. that they had. Um, so it, and I just think that they're, they, they gave their case up when they realized that the Supreme Court wasn't really going to get involved. Yeah, you know, and when you're as big as Qualcomm and you're such a large part of cellular networking in general, certainly 5G, um, it's easy to paint a target on their back, right? Because they're big, you know, and it's like, oh, because they're big, they've got to be anti-competitive. But you know, again, I think, you know, a, a lot of these, you know, you know, judicial, you know, um, folks and a lot of our government, you know, um, you know, representation doesn't understand tech to the extent that they need to. And that, that was quite evident, you know, during the, you know, the Facebook hearings, you know, a couple of years ago, right? Um, it was almost embarrassing. So, um, yeah, so it's like, it, you know, it's no secret, but, but yeah, you know, like you mentioned, Patrick, you know, our, our principal has written, you know, extensively on this. And uh, it's it's good to see that, you know, finally Qualcomm, you know, they, they got their day in court multiple times, but, you know, th- this was able, this was able to, you know, be, you know, um, resolved in their favor. So, but hey, buddy, it was another great podcast. Really enjoyed the conversation. Why don't you take us home? Absolutely. We hope our viewers and listeners on this week's topics interesting. If anyone out there would like to provide us insight on a specific 5G topic for a future podcast, please reach out to us on social media. Will is at Will Town Tech and I'm at Anshel Saab. We hope you have a great weekend and please tune again next week.